listeners, and welcome to yet another episode of Film is Lit, the podcast where we compare and contrast a piece of literature and its film or television adaptation. Although, today we're going to do something a little different. Here's the twist. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's the twist. But here's the twist. I am, of course, quoting Bill Tyndall. If anyone's familiar with Yahoo streaming service parody, Burning Love, you'll understand my reference. Everyone's favorite (laughs) streaming service, Yahoo. (laughs) You really should go watch that show. If you're not familiar with Burning Love, it is maybe one of the most successful parodies of all time of The Bachelor. Uh, Anyway, uh, my name is Laura. I am the co-host of this podcast, and I am the literature expert, she, her. Hi, my name is Danny. I'm the film expert. He, him. It's another special episode. (laughs) Thank you for bringing your own sound effects to this. Uh, That was Danny's own mouth. You heard that from. That was not an app. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, should we explain the twist as Bill Tyndall would do? Before we get to the twist... Let's get to some announcements. Oh, that's up right. Top if Go we ahead. have any, we no, do. You, you, you're the one with announcements. No, we we both have announcements. Number one, we were going to let our listeners know or remind our listeners that we did a crossover episode with our friends John and Pat, and their podcast called Pat and John on their best behavior. Uh, We just want to throw out another shout out to them for inviting us onto their fantastic podcast. We hope that you'll go check them out because they have a really, really fun concept. So go ahead and listen to our episode. I think it's episode 66. Yep. Yeah. Titled Book to Film Adaptations. Uh, So yeah, it's kind of like our own little episode of Film is Lit on someone else's podcast. So they're gracious enough to have us on. And I met John through college, so it was... It was nice to reconnect, for sure. Yeah, they have they had some really interesting ideas as well that we got to share and just kind of nerd out about movies, which was really fun. So go and check that out. The next announcement that we wanted to say was that we are planning a very special Halloween episode. Uh, we're actually recording that tomorrow with another good friend of ours, Kyle. And yeah, we're just excited for the spooky holidays. I've been reading a whole bunch of scary books. I've been reading Dracula, Candyman. There's another spoiler alert for an upcoming episode and Dr. Sleep. So we're really excited to get into spooky season. Yeah, Dr. Sleep will be the episode in question. So get to reading if you haven't already. We'll debut that episode on Halloween. So whenever you're listening to this, Mark your calendar for Halloween. Uh, We don't normally release episodes on weekends, but in this case we are to celebrate the special day. So yeah. And oh, just you wait. We'll post it to the Instagram, but just you wait until you see our costumes. Oh boy, (laughs) you're gonna flip. We went, I mean, we really enjoy Halloween. So we usually go all out with our costumes. Actually, one of our first dates when Danny met my parents, we were in togas. So (laughs) that's up for debate when I exactly, I met your parents. We have different stories, which is weird. Well, anyway, one of the times you met my mom in a toga and she was like, this man was comfortable enough to meet me in a toga. That means he's pretty confident in himself. So. I had no choice. That's You what also I was had wearing. no underwear. <laughs> well, that, that's usually the case for any day. But let's 
get on with the episode. So another special episode. A while ago, we did books we wish were movies. Mm-hmm. And that is by far, this is a little glimpse behind the scenes, that episode is by far our most downloaded episode. We don't know why or what happened, but the analytics on that episode is skyrocketed. People love that. It's so weird to me because, I don't know, I'm wondering if it's because of what we chose. Like, what we chose was sometimes a little bit more diverse than what we're able to cover just because of, like, what gets money, right, to be made into films. Like... Maybe people are just latching on to the content that we chose because th- we don't see that reflected in the movies as much. I have I mean, no idea. Like, I, I don't know. I have no idea. That's a good theory. But on the other side of the coin is the fact that the most popular movies we cover are the most popular ep- episodes as well. So like Harry Potter, that, yeah. Jurassic Park, The Martian, Ready Player One. It's always surprising to look at our analytics because the episodes that we think are going to do really well don't. And then the episodes where we're like, eh, like East of Eden. Yeah, East of Eden. Who who would have thought East of Eden would be our most one of our most downloaded episodes next to Jurassic Park? Yeah, we barely wanted to cover that. Yeah, (laughs) because it's a long ass book and it's not a great movie in my opinion. Danny liked it a little more than me, but it's a movie. It's not a. It's not like a classic classic like sure it has james dean but like right it's not you know you don't say, you don't put it in the same list as like hitchcock movies it's you know it's... right and then we also have a lot of jane austen heads listening to this podcast yeah shout out to the jane austen heads those episodes do really well who would have thought and some episodes we think are going to be a hit like gangbusters don't do well like our silence of the lamb episode yeah didn't get a lot of downloads our rosemary's baby episode didn't so go download those episodes because yeah. <laughs> they're great. <laughs> I don't know what people are waiting for. But anyway, of course, we always love our listeners. We appreciate that a single download ends up on our charts. We, because... we appreciate our listeners, but listen to every episode, gosh darn it. Come on. If, no. you're, if you're following us and subscribed, download them. Yeah, I don't... Well, yeah. We do this for the numbers. <laughs> we do this for the money. But this episode is an inverse of our Books We Wish Were Movies episode. This episode is Movies We Wish Were Books. Purely because we just want to talk about how much we love this content. <laughs> yeah. We have a few of our favorite movies that we wish we could discuss on this podcast, but we simply can't because... There's no source material to... Right. And then I have a couple of surprise picks, I think, that... I think would be work better in book form. That's why I, I picked them. But interesting. Yeah, I think okay. you're gonna I think you're gonna be intrigued by a few of my picks. A, a few of them are obvious. If you know me, you know my favorite movies, and I've talked ad nauseum about a few of them. But yeah, I think this is gonna be an interesting episode. And if last special episode is any indicator, this is gonna do well on the analytics. So that's why we're doing it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I was going to say, conversely, if you know me, you can probably right off the bat figure out what top five I chose to highlight on my choices because I just can't shut up about these. <laughs> yeah. I kind of constantly I, talk about I them. I know one of them for sure. I'm not going to spoil it up top, <laughs> but I definitely know one, if not two. <laughs> if I, not I would three, say, if not four, if not five. Well, we've covered... A few of your favorite movies already. So. Right. Well, Call Me By Your Name was out right. and running. 
uh, if Beale Street could talk, is out of the running, obviously. But yeah, Jurassic Park. Of, of course. Uh, yeah, we're very lucky that we can cover a lot of fantastic content on this show. However, there are some things that unfortunately have to be left out. And so that's why we're doing this special episode. So I guess we've preambled for long enough. You want to hop along? Let's get to it. So yeah, we don't know each other's picks. Um, we each get five minutes per... Approximately. Approximately. If I can't shut up about... Madman. No, not approximately. If you go one <laughs> second over, we're cutting you off, dude. Okay. But yeah. Probably that's that's what the list is. And you get time out. Yeah. This is the big thing. <laughs> There's just gonna here. be like fifteen minutes of dead air while I go in the corner right. and cry. We have at least at least tens of subscribers, so we take this seriously. Okay. Laura, lead us off. Okay. Uh so, first of all, originally, I thought I was going to be able to watch rewatch everything on my list, but I honestly realized that I know them all by heart. It's, like, kind of sick how easy it was for me to put it together, this list. It's a little gross, I would say, it's, how much you rewatch your fit. No, I'm kidding. So, I actually, I even said, I even, I, so I was, like, writing down notes as I was going through these, but I said, I even know set pieces and costumes. Send help. Because I truly do. Like, for my first example... I am going, I mean, I already kind of said it, but I guess you can start my time now. All right, you're on the clock. My first choice, of course, is Mad Men, the show. It ran from 2007 to 2015. Right off the gate going with a TV show, even though the title's yes. called movie. No, no, we decided on TV I, shows. Right, right, right. You're, that's eligible. Okay. I'm just saying, okay. like, right off the bat. Wow. I was going to say it because I actually have... Twist and a half. <laughs> it's, all TV sh- it's all TV shows. It's all TV Sorry, shows. Sorry, I'm eating up into your time. Go ahead. You are. So I, ha- I have been obsessed with Mad Men since I started watching it. It wasn't in 2007, but it was when I was in college it came out on Netflix, available to stream. I dove in and I, there is no turning back. I have never talked to someone as fanatical about Mad Men as I am. I have even read a book called The Philosophy of Mad Men, which is kind of fucked up. Like, again, I said, send help. Sounds interesting. I'm kind of, <laughs> it was, so it is. <laughs> it's actually a collection of philosophers that break down different concepts in Mad Men and different characters and their motivations for how they do things. It's incredible. Incredible. I love it. I mean, yeah, you're, um, you're selling me on it. So, so my notes, I'm just going to kind of run through my notes, but Mad Men is incredible because the time period exactly matches the themes, which basically is America is looking inward. There are very few plots that are highly dramatic. So we ha- really have to look for where the tension is coming from. And I really want to highlight season one, episode three, which is called The Marriage of Figaro, which is where we start seeing Don's story unravel a little bit, where the first two episodes have set him up as someone that you do not recognize by episode three. Uh, Betty Draper, his wife, his kids are not mentioned until episode three. That is shocking. Um, but it it's just incredible how they set Don up. Every single character, except for a few, you know, kind of background characters are so well set up and their motivations are so clearly defined or I guess they're not quite defined. I mean, oh God, the first episode is called Smoke Gets Your In Your Eyes because like you can't see everybody's motivation right off the bat, but by the end of the show, everybody gets this incredible character development. Anyway, I'm going off, but the Marriage of Figaro is the one where we see Don 
filming the party through a camera. The, the filming of the guests is flawless. It kind of shows like the facade that everybody's putting on, like this happy face at the party, but then you see what's going on behind the camera and people are mm. fighting and sexually harassing people and slapping other people's kids. An excellent allegory for social media and how that <laughs> yeah, yeah. mirages, I guess, reality. Yeah. You don't see the good parts, yeah. Yeah. So I know I'm looking at the clock. I have two minutes left, but Don, Betty, Joan, Roger, and Peggy all represent different mindsets and approaches toward current events. And that list could go on. I also have Pete, Megan, everybody's parents, Henry and Sally, who are characters that you get more of toward the later seasons. They represent very different approaches toward those decades that we cover, which basically are the 60s through the early 70s. Gosh, the the interplay of Don, Peggy, and Pete, uh, and the way that they approach forgetfulness and memory is incredible. Another favorite episode of mine, my personal favorite episode is called The Wheel. Uh, it's the one in which Peggy gives birth, and it really digs into that whole, it's, it's sort of this Nietzschean idea about the function of memory in life. In fact, I have a Kodak wheel for a slide projector that they are creating a campaign around because this is my favorite episode. Analyze that episode in college. Oh yeah, I mean it's, yeah. so I I don't know exactly how many Emmys that episode won, but I would say most likely like 100,000? Yeah. Ballpark. Um, Although John Hamm didn't win until the final season for Best Actor. Oh, really? Yeah. Gosh. I worship at his feet. Yeah. <laughs> is Who incredible. doesn't? Um, I'm, that is one celebrity where if I saw him or if I saw Elizabeth Moss, I think I might have a heart attack and die. 2018, coming out of Suspiria, directed by Luca Guadagnino. <gasps> That's right. I was at the Arclight Hollywood, which as of this recording is still boarded up. It's not, I don't know if it's coming back. <laughs> yeah. I came out of the bathroom after watching Suspiria and John Hamm was just there in a baseball cap on his phone waiting for someone. I don't know who. It was but... probably like a Cardinals hat because he's obsessed with, he's from sure. St. Louis. Yeah. And yeah. Okay. Uh, fun fact, he also has been at my high school. There was a, I think it was a GQ shoot, uh, and he went on to our field and like had this huge photo shoot. I didn't see him, which is soul crushing. I think I was in college at the time, um, mm. but he's been to my high school. Um, so yeah, I guess my only other fun fact, because I think I've talked over my five minutes, uh, I already mentioned this a little bit, but I'm a huge thrift shopper. And so every time I find a prop that was used in the show or that was represented in the show, I buy it, and so my list currently stands at my Kodak wheel. Uh, if you look very closely in the later episodes in the art department, there is a poster of a gold and black peacock, and I have that poster, <laughs> and I have Betty Draper's Betty Crocker's Hostess Cookbook, which is also featured in a couple episodes on the counter. Um, yeah. <laughs> I have an absolute obsession with this show. I think I'm vindicated because of how many Emmys it won when it was out. Yeah. And that's about all I have to say. It digs into so much more than what I talked about in my five minute period, five minute plus period, but I absolutely worship it. It will constantly be on in the background of my life. <laughs>
Yeah, and I guess my life too, by proxy. <laughs> yeah, no, art is subjective, but Mad Men is one of the, objectively, one of the great TV shows. I mean, we're in the golden age of TV right now. We're kind of getting out of it with the amount of shows that are coming out now. There's just the volume is, is too big, but when Mad Men was coming out, Golden and, Age. And Mad Men was still coming out weekly. It wasn't on a streaming service. Yeah. It, it is kind of a bridge in that way right. between Not, yeah. network and streaming. Right. Not that streaming is bad or anything. Right. It's just, yeah, it was, it was coming out during that time. Exactly. And coming out at the same time like Breaking Bad was coming out, another mm. one of the all-time great drama series. So, yeah, Mad Men from an artistic standpoint, editing standpoint, character work standpoint. Score. A score, acting. Production, I, design. John Hamm is great, but Elizabeth Moss also <sighs> fantastic. One of the great roles. Um, I have a Funko Pop of her. Right, yeah. Carrying her cardboard box into Sterling Draper Cooper Price. Love John Slattery as well. I don't know why John Slattery isn't in more things. John Slattery. Why isn't he everywhere? Is the Silver Fox. I love him. He's in a great episode of 30 Rock that I just watched too, where he's like the baby yeah. campaign. But <laughs> other than Mad Men, he's not really known for... He was in Ed. Okay. It's a show that was out in like the early 2000s. I guess I didn't watch that. So yeah, Ed and Mad Men, he should be a big star like John Hamm. But... Yeah, I, I love him. He, yeah. Again, if I saw him on the street, I would die because... Sure, yeah. I'd have a lady boner, but... Great. <laughs> <laughs> I used total... I was going to steamroll right through that, but I'm unable to. <laughs> All right. The clock starts for me. My first pick is the 2014 sci-fi drama written and directed by Alex Garland. You guessed it, Ex Machina. Oh boy, one of, for my money, one of the greatest scripts ever written. I'm not saying, it's one of my favorite movies, maybe not number one. We'll get to that soon. Mm. But this script, it's the ultimate three-act, three-person play that Ooh, is... yeah. And when, I, when the trailers came out for this in early 2014... I was interested in it because Alex Garland was directing and writing it, and I, I worship that guy like you worship John Hamm. But it just seemed like your typical artificial intelligence story. Like, oh, what? The AI, the robot, is going to develop human emotions and outsmart the human... Like, this seems very cliched. It's been done before... Formulaic. A th a formulaic, done before a thousand times... That's kind of like the basis for all artificial intelligence stories is that they develop their own Sentient. sentience and ulterior motives. It just seems so obvious to me. And it didn't look that action-packed, which it's not. It's not an action movie, but it just kind of looked boring. Like three people in a house and they're just talking to this robot. I didn't really get it and I had no desire to see it in a theater until... And forgive me, Matt and Tim, I forget which one of you saw it in a theater or just saw it on your own, but you recommended it to me after I had decided not to go see it. And whatever my brothers say, I think we have similar sensibilities. So I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I was wrong on this one. And boy, was I wrong. To say that this is the most thrilling and thought-provoking exercise in a, a Turing test is, is an understatement. That's exactly what the movie is. So... This 
reclusive billionaire played by Oscar Isaac. He lives out somewhere in... Like Oregon or... No, it's like uh, Iceland. It was shot in Iceland, but I don't know if they specifically say where his remote cabin mansion uh, is. I think that's the point. They they don't want to exactly pinpoint it, but it was filmed in Iceland. It looks like Iceland. So an employee of Oscar Isaac's company, which his company is kind of an Apple adjacent, like a, a tech social media company. So he's, he's supposed to be playing a version of Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, but someone who is clearly has some warped sensibilities about the world because he's just so divorced from reality because of his wealth. Jeffrey, and and Jeffrey his Bezos. intelligence. I'm not calling Jeff <laughs> Bezos intelligent. I'm just saying that I'm comparing him to the, yeah. the those type of people. Anyways, I guess by comparing, I am saying. What am I trying to say here? Is that, so Oscar Isaac, he has a goal to test out his new artificial intelligence played by Alicia Vikander. Love her. Yeah. And he, so he has a goal to do a Turing test and a, a Turing test, for those who don't know, is you bring in a human component and you have them have a conversation or interact with a robot in some way. And if that human doesn't realize they're talking and interacting with a robot, then that robot passes the Turing test. Now, so he brings Caleb, played by Domhnall Gleeson, our, one of oh, our favorites. And we've seen him. Yes. We, well, already out of time. Uh, he brings Caleb to his compound under the guise of that he won this contest at work, but really Oscar Isaac picks him specifically because he feels he's vulnerable. A vulnerable person who could be taken advantage of by Ava, the robot. And basically the line that Oscar Isaac gives is that, I put a rat in a cage and I told the rat where the exit is. You are the path. So Caleb is the path between the rat and the exit. And the twists in this movie. It, every 10 minutes, just like with Bad Education, another movie we, we love, every 10 minutes there's a clever twist in the narrative. You realize Nathan, who's Oscar Isaac, has been using Caleb in a way that he wasn't aware of and that, that actually Caleb is testing Nathan and then Ava is testing both of them. and then Ka- So everyone is testing each other. The conversations they have between each other about sexuality, about awareness, about how every human interaction is a transaction. It's just these thought-provoking, mind-blowing conversations. And it's- Layered conversations. Yeah, and the whole movie is essentially just people talking in rooms. From start to finish, that's the whole movie. And again, I thought I was going to hate it. I ended up loving it. It's one of my favorite movies. I recommend it to everyone. The score is incredible. The dance scene with Nathan and Kyoko, played by Sonia Mizuno, who is in Alex Garland's other series, Devs. That's one of the greatest scenes. The dance with her! Dance with her! And then Caleb's like, you tore up your picture. And Caleb's like, I'm going to tear up this dance floor. It's hilarious, darkly funny, ex machina, one of the greats. I think you made a really astute observation about how this could be a play because plays are normally restricted by space and time to very few set pieces. And that's exactly how this movie turns out. There are a few rooms and that's it. They're basically in a house the whole time. Yeah. And I think that would be really interesting to see this adapted. Please, nobody turn this into a musical. I'm just saying it turning 
I'm just saying it would be interesting as a stage play. Please don't turn this into a musical. I can't stress enough how many movies have been made into musicals that should not have been. But I would be very interested to see this as a stage play. Uh, yeah, I don't see a musical <laughs> in its future, but I... Well, Legally Blonde is a musical now, so... That's true. But yeah, shout out to set decorator Michelle Day and the scouts who picked this house and I guess the whole prop and sets team that built the sets... Yeah. It's beautiful. It's minimalist, but it makes an impact. Clean lines. Oh, yeah. Modernist. Beautiful. Yeah, definitely supports the themes in the movie. Go check it out if you haven't seen it. Cinematography by Rob Hardy. Great. Wasn't nominated that year. Anyways, I digress. Lore, your number two pick. Go ahead. Well, my number two pick is also not going to be a huge surprise to anyone who knows me. And we already talked about Damal Gleason. We did see him at a UCB show, which was really exciting. <laughs> he was sitting behind us and uh, he's a, we, I, we didn't meet him, but it was fun to just even see him. Uh, my second choice is the 2013 movie directed by Richard Curtis called About Time. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's not a shocker i'm pretty sure i've mentioned this movie on this podcast every episode <laughs> yeah have i figured out how to mention it every episode um so interestingly richard curtis also wrote nodding hill which is a top tier rom-com great movie i'd never seen it until wonderful it movie yeah. yeah that's that's kind of one of my family's favorite it like i said it's a top tier rom-com it's nothing groundbreaking but it has that line i'm just a girl standing in front of a guy asking him to love her you know it's it's a really good the score is incredible anyway we're not talking about nodding hill we're talking about about time so it's very similar to Woody Allen's Midnight in Paris, which used to be my favorite movie until I scratched the surface of the Woody Allen nut. <laughs> um, I still love that movie, but it's tainted, of course. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that this movie, so this movie has replaced that as my favorite, and I think it's just done better. I think this movie is better written than that movie. I think the cinematography is better, the acting, the casting. It's it's a beautiful movie. It's so sweet. It never really crosses too far into the sci-fi aspect. Um, right. I think if, if which it easily could have, which it, it easily got could have, down and yeah, I I agree. I think if if people aren't familiar with this story, it it, it does involve time travel, but that is purely the only sci-fi aspect in this and they never even explain how the time travel really happened or how the power has been passed down to this family it's purely a tool to be able to teach audiences about ironically almost how to enjoy the time that you do have on this earth as a human right i don't think it ever gets too sentimental i i promise you agreed yeah. every time i start drinking at night i turn this movie on and i sob there is not a single time i have turned this movie on and not sobbed because it's not too sentimental it's just it walks that line of perfectly realistic and it really dives into the relationships in this family and how important the people in their lives are and how important it is to have morals and respect people and, you know, how your kindness makes ripples in the world and right. affects other people and how the little things are not 
in reality, little things. They're big things. And it also has the perfect amount of humor. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very funny. Very funny. It, it It's a British humor, right? Very dry. The... Saltine. <laughs> Tom, <dry. laughs> Tom Hollander and Bill Nighy. How did both of them not win a supporting role Academy Award for this? Because Tom Hollander's character plays this absolutely angry but successful English playwright. <laughs> There's this line at one point where he goes, he's greeting... Donald Gleason's character for the first time and he's like who like he's so angry that <laughs> he's interacting his, his with this best person man speech yeah at first when Tim asked me to do it to do his best man speech I said are you shitting me I don't write for free you fucking idiot or something like that like that's his best man speech yeah. uh fantastic and for the MCU fans out there we are not talking about Tom Holland we are talking about Tom Hollander, Hollander. yes much older he was the bad British guy in the third Pirates of the Caribbean okay. he Tom Hollander is I don't know if he's underrated but he's maybe one of my oh, top favorite actors underrated. he is incredible in everything he's in and again for this example so he is just the crankiest, angriest person, even though he's a very successful playwright, right. which is funny in itself. But then to see him at, this is kind of a spoiler, but Bill Nighy's character as the father dies near the end. And the sentiment in the one of his final lines, when he says, so the mom walks in and she goes, okay, are we ready to go to the funeral? And he looks at her and he goes, of course not, hateful day. Oh, ah, yeah. I choke up even saying it. <laughs> it's it's such a it shows such a full blown written character yeah. as someone who's a very minor minor character in the scheme of the story. Um, so basically, yeah, it's it's a time travel movie about the importance of staying present and spending time with the people you love. It's so it's not about traveling in time. It's about being present, and I just think it's the best. It is the best movie. I've ever seen in my life. Right. Instead of being about time travel, it uses that as a device for character development. Yeah. And it's not, like you said, overly sentimental. It's not twee or slight. No. And a, a few Richard Curtis's projects can be feel slight, but mm -hmm. not Notting Hill and especially not about time. And you know what? Fun fact, I was t talking about the similarities with Midnight in Paris when I started, but Rachel McAdams actually plays a wonderful partner for Donald Gleason's character, Tim, whereas she's the absolute awfulest character in Midnight in Paris. And her name is Inez and she just is the worst <laughs> fiance. So anyway, that, uh, go watch that movie. If you yeah. haven't seen it, it's, but get ready to cry. Cause it's, it is a little bit of a tearjerker, but, uh, and you had beautiful. mentioned, yeah, with, wine you cry but you don't need wine no you don't drink. you don't i i just <laughs> and also and also second point um every time you drink wine whether we're watching something or not you do cry that's not um, true at all so, um... only if i drink red wine um this movie also features a, a young margot robbie which is fun oh yeah she's in it uh here and there and uh in a very funny scene but... yes it, it is i mean I don't, I don't know if i'd say it's a stacked cast but it's a very very well Cast. cast movie and everybody brings their a game his mother oh my Agreed. gosh yeah just incredible oh um 
Vanessa Kirby is also in this movie. Yeah. And she's hilarious. She's, she's great. fucking fantastic. So anyway, I've, I've said enough. I've gone over my five minute limit. Good movie. And yeah. time travel is going to come back later on Uh-oh, in this episode. Oh, it's like we both like sci-fi movies. Yeah. <laughs> A little too much. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. And also we should mention full spoilers for everything we say. We of just want to cover ourselves. So if we mention something, just stop listening and go watch it if you don't want to have it spoiled. Okay, my number two pick is the 2012 film from a little filmmaker not well known. His name is Paul Thomas Anderson. <laughs> That's right, I'm talking about The Master. I have Ooh. not seen this. I gotta see this movie. So this came out my first year of film school, when I was at the height of my pretentious snobbery, <laughs> if you could say. And I was a Paul Thomas super fan. I still am. But think about a freshman in film school with a PTA film coming out. I lost my mind. Okay? <laughs> now, the hype around it, everyone was saying like, ooh, it's about Scientology. It's about L. Ron Hubbard. And it really isn't... Well, it's more about here. Here's the log line that my film professor told me that changed my life. The master is about a con man and a man who can't be conned. Interesting. Any thoughts? <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen it, so I, yes. I don't know. Yeah, the, the religion that Philip Seymour Hoffman created and wrote all these books about, it's not a one-to-one -one parallel to Scientology. It's, it's much different. But I think what PTA is getting at is that men with power, they can say whatever and people just gravitate towards power and that can corrupt someone very, very quickly. And before you know it, you have a movement. Whether or not Philip Seymour Hoffman in the movie, his character is Lancaster Dodd. What a name. That's a great Lancaster name. Lancaster Dodd. Yeah, it makes sense they'd be ahead of a new religion with that name. But before you know it, you have this movement. And whether or not by the time that Joaquin Phoenix comes into the movie, he plays Freddie Quell, whether or not Lancaster Dodd actually believes what he is saying, what he's preaching anymore, is beside the point. Now Lancaster Dodd has to deal with this essentially occult that he's created and you over the course of the movie you come to the conclusion that yeah he he doesn't care he's in it for the power he's in it to be at the top but then throw in someone like freddie who's a man who can't be conned Here, here's this man on the outskirts of society he was he has ptsd from the war oh yeah this takes, takes place in the 50s he can't hold a job for more than a few months because he'll either get fired or he'll piss someone off or he'll run away. Uh, he's on the run from the law at the start of the story. He is this free spirit who is so detached from society that he thinks Lancaster Dodd is a sanctuary for him. He thinks that this religion is the answer. But then when he realizes, no, this is empty, this is something that is controlled by a man who only wants me in here for power and for the drinks I make, because that, that's a plot point. He abandons Philip Seymour Hoffman, and for Philip Seymour Hoffman, Lancaster Dodd, you know for him that this is the first time in his life 
where someone has evaded his his net. The first time where he hasn't been able to convince someone with his stature, his intelligence, his words, his charm to, his charm to yeah. join his God. This is the first time for his life that he's faced this. And you can tell that both men will be broken forever. But the person who comes out on top is Freddy because for the first time in his life, he figure, he finally figures out a place where he doesn't want to be. He's searching for something and he he's searching for meaning and meaning for him comes in the form of him saying that that's not who I am. I'm mm -hmm. not someone who can succumb to lies and to toxic power. Interesting. Sorry to spoil it for no, you. No, I not. It's not spoiled too much because I knew a little bit about it right. going in. So I. The, the film is very literary in that it's poetic. It takes its time. It hits you in waves, and I don't think. It's perfect. It's a little long at two hours and 18 minutes. I think it could have been cut by like 10 minutes and then it would be perfect. It's also a little aloof and weird on purpose. It, it kind of, he has a precision with his weirdness. It's not as accessible as it should be. And I think PTA did this on purpose so people wouldn't be like, this is the Scientology movie. Like mm. it's about Scientology, but they never actually say it. I think, for the most part, goes to that point where it's a great parallel for just any cult or any movement. It doesn't have to be tied to religion or beliefs. Just any movement, it's a cautionary tale for it's like, watch out for the people at the top because, you know, you don't know whether they actually believe what they say or they're just in it for the influence and power. So the cinematography, as in all PTA movies, is beautiful. The cinematographer is Mihai Malai Mar. Uh, please forgive me if I pronounce that incorrectly. This is the only movie that he shot for PTA. Now PTA shoots his own films. Beautiful movie. I can't wait to watch it with you. Like I said, it's just like waves over a beach and it washes over you and it, it's a little odd for sure. And it takes a while for it to fully sink in, but that's kind of the beauty of it. Well, I don't have too much to say about it, obviously, since I haven't seen it. However, I do want to give a shout out to a video series that I've come to really, really love that's put out by Entertainment Insider, where they ask a professional at the height of their game, basically, to watch 10 movie clips and rate how realistic they are based on their experience and training. And there is a an episode that focuses on cult movies and they bring in an expert on how to break people out of cults. And so he rates a scene from the master and he rates it at like a nine out of 10. So yeah. just from that one clip, I could tell that it was something special. And I also encourage anybody who is interested to watch those entertainment insider videos because they're so, so, so interesting. I get a lot out of them. They're a little bit long sometimes, but they're fun to watch. And sometimes I use them just to source information for our podcast. So I wanted yeah. to give them a shout out. Uh, well, I guess it's my turn again. Number and... three pick. And you're on the clock. Well, do you know what it is? No. It's a PTA movie. <laughs> <gasps> I know what it is, but, but you say. I was listening to the score today on vinyl because it's one of my favorite scores. It is Inherent Vice. <laughs> <laughs> it is 2017's Phantom Thread. Ooh. I fucking adore this movie. 
and I wish that we could talk about it as a book, but I honestly don't think that this could ever be translated into a text. This is a feeling movie, I think, in my opinion. I don't know how this would be translatable into text. What do you think? Yeah, I like that description, a feeling movie. It's a vibe. It's a bit, yeah. it's a slice of a decadent cake type from Oh movie. my gosh, that's so, yeah, well said. It's just beautiful. Every shot in this film is incredible. Everybody's firing on all cylinders. Like a lot of PTA movies, it is a little strange, especially by the end. Oh, I freaking <laughs> love but the, the but end. But the end just okay and this is why this is why i love this movie so the end the first time we watched it in theaters was very strange to me and i didn't quite understand it because if you've seen the movie it's so toxic literally and figuratively where spoilers alma who is daniel day lewis's character's love interest uh daniel day lewis plays a character named reynolds woodcock Oh, another great name. <laughs> another great name. In the very end, they are together. And to stay together, Alma has to consistently, basically microdose him with poisonous mushrooms <laughs> so that he gets sick and is and can allow himself to be taken care of. Honestly, hot. And <laughs> Kinky. So the first time we saw it in theaters... I was just not interested in that like toxic manipulative relationship because the first time he doesn't know what's happening by the second and third times he is very aware and we see him make eye contact with her and he knows this food is poisoned and he just like takes this incredibly dainty bite and chews it and we see him chewing for about a minute and it's that choice to take a back seat to what you think you need and let someone else take care of you that I think is actually really beautiful. And it's a little bit of a fucked up message. And that's what I had issues with. Like if it was him poisoning her, I think I would have a little bit more issue uh, right. with it. Yeah. But I honestly think that this opened my mind to how different relationships can be and mm -hmm. how like if they're purely if two people or multiple people, I guess, if you're in a polyamorous relationship, if multiple people are truly willing participants in the give and take of what a relationship takes, then I can't judge that, right? And, and truly, like, PTA goes so far out of his way to prove to you that these two people are willing and happy to be together because Woodcock will not take a break. Yeah. He will not. He is so driven. And I, I'm not sure if I said this, but he's a fashion designer also in the 50s, um, like a couture fashion designer, like, you know, designs wedding dresses for princesses. And he just will not stop. And he pushes people away. The only person that he's been able to keep around for longer than a few months is his sister. Yeah. But this other woman is finally able to crack that nut and sort of almost force him to take a backseat to himself. And I, it's just so it's 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 a fucked up vehicle in a way, but it's it honestly opened my mind to the way that different people live their lives in different relationships. Again, purely based on the fact that it has to be 100 percent consensual. Right. Right. But 
if you need to microdose your husband to get him to take a break and to let him take care of you, then hey, if it works for you, it works. No, I think it's, even though it might be literally toxic what's going on, I think exactly what you said. It's a couple realizing what works for them. Reynolds is a workaholic, so he needs to be taken care of like a baby. Because he's rendered to be a baby, this helpless body that's just... (laughs) sweating and and shivering and and vomiting and excreting basically (laughs) yep that's the word and hey if it works for them and no one's getting hurt well i guess he's technically getting hurt then like knock yourself out before this before this happened they had both been reserving so much in their relationship and had been building up and contempt had formed where a loving relationship should be and this was kind of the linchpin that brought them back together. So I, I guess I don't see it as, as toxic at all. It's certainly weird. I mean, I can't imagine my grandma watching this movie. <laughs> right. But, which is funny because for most of the film, it feels like a, a grandma movie, which is not a bad thing. It's beautifully made. Right. But it's a different kind of pace for PTA. But yeah, I love it too. One of the best of 2017, I believe, when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We also saw that at the Arclight. Wow, what? R.I.P. Arclight. Well, yeah, and I guess my my only other comment about it is that, and this, this may be reading a little too far into it, but I guess for me, you know, to see so many people in the media judged for their relationships, and I wanted to specifically call out like Florence Pugh and Zach Braff and Zendaya and John David Washington and Marie and Malcolm, Malcolm, Malcolm and Marie. And Marie. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you know how many people get so offended and so violently against people dating so older partners uh-huh. rather than trusting that people know what's best for them. I think that's kind of a nice message to come out of this movie. Yeah. Um, I guess the only other thing that I wanted to say was Johnny Greenwood scored this. Oh, and one of the goats. God, I I put this on as much, if not more, than the If Beale Street Could Talk score. I think those may be my two absolute peak scores. As a whole, throughout the entire movie, they just take me away. They're beautiful. Yeah, what did... What did this... Oh, this lost to The Shape of oh, Water. Oh, please. I know people love that film, God. but this score over the... Uh, anyways. Oh, God. Yeah, just, just upsetting. That year in particular i was so upset about shape of water i still have not seen it i just refuse to because there's it's just it swept like it won best picture and it should not have won best picture um that year at the emmys made that year at the academy awards just made me really angry i wouldn't Um, bring that up to kyle because he's next episode honestly come over and fight me kyle (laughs) because she fights dirty so watch (laughs) out she will throw sand in your eye (laughs) yeah just bend down and like All right, well, my number three pick is a film we have a very special connection to because... it's not on my list, what? No, it, oh, it for sure is not on your list. Very special connection to because it was the first drive-in movie that we saw together. It was the first movie we watched after we got engaged on the day we got engaged. That's right, I'm talking about the 2020, getting modern, Christopher Nolan movie, Tenet. I'm shocked. Now. Wow. I'm as shocked as you are. Because this is the first movie that I both love and hate 
with a passion. It is an enigma of a film, an enigma of a plot. I've never felt like this before, where I'm just so frustrated at every screenwriting decision Christopher Nolan made, but at the same time, I cannot deny the spectacle of it and the intrigue of time inversion and temporal pincer movements, which the character Ives in Tenet says about eight billion times. He keeps on saying temporal pincer movement. He simply cannot stop saying it. That's actually hilarious because I've seen this movie twice and I have never heard that phrase. <laughs> well, out of the movie. That's hilarious. They, yeah, because what, what are people saying in this? What is going on? It is crazy to me that even a man like Christopher Nolan, who's been getting blank checks from Warner Brothers ever since he made Batman Begins, <laughs> it is crazy to me that he was able to produce this script with seemingly no revisions, no one coming in and saying, no one, even his wife who's producing the film and has produced his other films, saying, hey Chris, maybe you're going a little too far here. Maybe it's a little too convoluted for no reason. Yeah. And essentially what Tenet is, is a James Bond film with a time inversion in there, which is- As a long line, sounds great. Yeah. Oh yeah, and it for the most part, it, the set pieces in this are incredible. Christopher Nolan <laughs> smashes a 747 into a building. <laughs> he writes a scene around that yeah. simply because he could. Like, what kind of madman does that? Christopher Nolan is out of his mind. And I want to make these big spectacle movies, but I would never think this is releasable. <laughs> I had to go online, and after my fourth watch, I'm like, Jesus Christ, like, I still can't get it. And upon analysis, this movie really isn't that deep at all. And a further analysis, you can figure out the exact plot. And it's like he went out of his way to obfuscate and to convolute his own story. And it's just the wrong decision. For Time inversion is already so hard to grasp that the fact that he, Christopher Nolan wouldn't explain it in a way that human minds can organically latch onto. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm not the brightest bulb in the pack, but a person shouldn't have to go on YouTube for hours and <laughs> Wikipedia to figure out- And Tanny has. Yes, it's just no reason for it to be as twisted it, like, a little twisted is fine. Like, keep up some mystery, some intrigue. But don't do this whole multiple meetings with the arms dealer where she's, like, already met him and the tight, like, Priya is her name. And then Kenneth Branagh is doing this crazy overblown Russian mobster performance. And it's just the wrong fit. Even though this is a Bond film and he's playing kind of like a Bond villain, everyone else is super serious and chill that he just sticks out like a sore thumb it was just the wrong choice i love kenneth Branagh, but this is just it was not right <laughs> for this role the two saving graces for the film outside of the set pieces are john david washington who plays the protagonist what a i mean what a find i always say in hollywood nepotism is perfectly fine if the son or daughter is good at acting mm -hmm. like I, like who cares if he's the son of denzel he's great he's on great, his own yeah. and robert pattinson he plays kind of the the slick comic relief i guess you could say but he's super cool i mean he should be james bond mm. uh, oh no no also john david washington he could be uh that's my time 
But I wanted this to be a book just so it could be explained to me more. That's interesting because I was going to say that all being said, after shitting on it, why would you, why did you decide to cover it? it but so yeah, yeah. You'd, you'd want someone to go back, make some cuts and make some clarity yes. and have it come out as a book. So it's like a guide to the movie. Right. And what's happening is cool. Like inverse bullets and, yeah, yeah. and hijacking a fire truck and using the ladder to do this big yeah. highway heist. And then that heist reverses and it's all cool stuff. And like I said, even though I'm infuriated by the storytelling. I mean, the opening opera sequence, although visually incredible, and the score by Ludwig Göransson, what a bop. So propulsive. Um, that opera sequence, you cannot hear what people no. are saying. It's so confusing. I have multiple YouTube videos interpret it a different way. And I, I don't think that sequence was supposed to be like up in the air about what exactly happened. No, I think Christopher Nolan is trying to say one thing and he just failed. So overall, this is an infuriating movie, but my God, does it look incredible. Hoyte Van Hoytema's cinematography is beautiful. He should have been nominated. He wasn't. The set pieces are some of the greatest set pieces ever filmed, but it simply confounds me. I love it, but I hate it. I can't look away. It's like a train wreck that's <laughs> exploding. I, like, what is going on? What is this movie? Seriously, what is it? Someone explain it to me. Yeah, well, uh, and again, not to sound like a broken record, but we do have a special connection to this. Danny proposed to me, and then we subsequently hopped in the car drove to a drive-in movie theater and saw this at night. And not only that, but we were lucky enough to see Christopher Nolan and his wife, Emma Thomas, at a Q&A at The Arrow. Yeah. Um, I have some beef with them right now. Come fight me. Um, it's just You're a list of people to come fight me. Uh, but we got to see them after a showing of Dunkirk when that came out. And so that was pretty special. I took Danny for his birthday and that was that was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they done fucked up with yes. this movie. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right, your number. So before we do our last two, I think we were going to do some honorable mentions. Oh yeah, hell yeah. I have a huge list of honorable mentions. <laughs> just list, list them off. <laughs> so this is a fun episode. I'm so happy that we got to do this because I just like geeking out about movies. Yeah. Uh, so honorable mentions, let's, let's go through my runner ups. These basically, I just knocked off my list because they either had corresponding themes that I had a better example movie for, mm -hmm. or they were just pure entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> and the first one is just kind of pure entertainment and glorious bastards. That's, <laughs> that's on my of, list. That's, oh gosh, it's one of my favorite it's films. Very, that's very literary too. Of all time. Like it is. And, oh yeah. yeah. I, most of Quentin Tarantino's movies are very literary. Yeah. Uh, the way that he plays with word art, basically, <laughs> between chapters uh, is pretty literary. Uh, Get Out was one of my runner-ups. Yeah. Oh, we got to see that again at the Arrow with a Q&A with the entire cast, as well as Jordan Peele. That was incredible. Knives Out. I mean just the best movie Great of film. 2019 uh sound of metal i really wanted to cover and then let's see parasite i wanted to give out a shout out to parasite uh promising Wo young woman loved that movie and then finally this one was hard to knock off my list but thoroughbreds mm. from 2017 that could be a play oh Corey finley the director wrote that as a play yeah um 
I don't know. Maybe we could cover that, but just a should I? Okay, so should I not have that one? On no, there? he didn't. He never published the play, so. Oh, okay. Well. So as we technically cannot cover it. It would be a very tight play. Yeah. And it's it's a great short movie. I uh, it's like a ninety minutes, but yep. yeah, if you haven't seen it, go watch that. So those are my runner-ups. Do you have any, or do you want to do my next choice and then your runner-ups? Yeah, let's do that. So your number... All right, my number four is Another Round. Oh, hell yeah. This movie is just beautiful. I love this movie. I was not expecting to love it. And then we watched it, and the next night I re-racked it, and I went back in, and I watched it again. And... (laughs) I've seen this on the plane twice now. Um, it is such an enjoyable movie. It came out in 2020, directed by Thomas Vinterberg. It won the Academy Award for Best International Film, right? Correct. In, uh, well, this last year, I guess. It covers themes of addiction and presence, which I talked about in About Time. So maybe that tells you something about me not being good at being present. I just wrote some of my notes so... Martin, who is played by Mads Mickelson. Mads Mickelson, thank you. I'm not great at remembering actors' names. You don't remember La Chiffre from well, Casino Royale? So Martin's transformation from the beginning to end, I think, is stunning. The physicality in the final dance scene is so freeing compared to in the very beginning where he's just sitting and every scene he's either sitting or lying down or hunching his shoulders when he's walking to class. And in the end, he literally flies. Like he jumps off a bench and flies into the harbor where he's dancing. It's just beautiful. Just the transformation I think is incredible. It's also very tragic. You know, again, spoilers, one of his closest friends, uh, Tommy commits suicide, which is caused by all of the emotional stuff that's gone on in the background of I think this movie could have was very risky because it does the opposite of villainizing being an alcoholic it almost uplifts that and says you can have benefits of being day drunk right and I think that it was really important to have Thomas's character be the risk of doing something as serious as that yeah because he he ends up committing suicide and it's really I think it reminds the audience of the gamble that went into this and how depressed all of these men had to be to think that this was a good idea. Right, yeah. It is much more a study of depression and what's going on in personal lives than of alcohol. And I thought it was walking a slippery slope, but it actually, no, it presents you with every single angle of this experiment of like someone who has benefits from alcohol, someone whose life falls apart because of alcohol, someone who kills himself because of alcohol. Alcohol gives people confidence. It brings back another relationship. So I think by presenting every angle, it lets you, the viewer, decide. Right. It's not pretentious at all saying like, alcohol is great, everyone should go drink. No, the beauty of the film, in my opinion, is that it has the respect enough for the viewer for you to make your own decision. Right, and and make the very clear decision that this is not an experiment to right. like gamble on, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I think it highlights, really, I think the beauty is the relationship between the men in this movie, because I don't think that we get a lot of open 
male psychological studies. Like this is literally, there is a philosopher, one of his friends is a philosophy teacher. And he's the one who starts out, as, there's kind of a, a false pretense of this being a study. Yeah. It's really not. They're just kind of, you know, screwing around with each other. But I think it highlights the, the fact that without alcohol, being vulnerable and open as not just a man, but, you know, whatever gender we're talking about, has the benefits that alcohol can give you because alcohol can make you open up a little bit more. We see at the, that at the beginning of the film where they all sit down to celebrate a birthday and it ends up sort of becoming this crisis for Martin, who's been having trouble with his wife and his kids and his work. And that alcohol sort of opens him up. And I think by the end of the movie, we see that it's not necessarily the alcohol that saved him. It was the openness with his friends. Yes. Um, and again, I, I think that's a beautiful thing to study in men because it's kind of treated as a soft subject for women. Like, oh, of course women are going to get together and cry and talk about their feelings. Like, that's what women do. But no, that's an important thing for all humans to do and practice. And yeah, that final dance scene. Oh, there's my time. That final dance scene slaps. Incredible that scene. Incredible scene. I think it does a really great job too of kind of it's it's an international film it wasn't made for american audiences so it's kind of delightful to see all of the danish traditions yeah. that are baked into this movie and god the acting is incredible the writing is incredible oh and uh i wanted to give a shout out to the scene where they all come together at the, there's a they have a little gathering a little party they're drinking and they start dancing together and the song is called sissy strut and it's such a slap. It's, it's so good. It's such a needle drop. Yeah. It was recorded by the meters. Uh, so I, yeah, I just, I look just think it's good. Yeah. Look that up. It's a, uh, and the, the final song too. Um, what a life is also great. Uh, and that's it. That's what I got. Awesome. Pick number four. So what are your runner ups? My runners up or runner ups, however <laughs> you want to call it. So first two are Heller Highwater and Sicario, both mm. written by Taylor Sheridan, both neo-westerns. Heller Highwater is kind of a slow burn of a film, but it's always tense. It's about these two bank robbers, and then Jeff Bridges is the sheriff who's after them. And it's kind of like a cat and mouse story, and the whole time it's leading up to the end, and you're wondering why they're doing what they're doing. Great, great story. Could make for a great book. Sicario is about uh, Mexico and the, the drug war between the U.S. and Mexico. Directed by Denis Villeneuve, my favorite. Also on my list, Prisoners. A that very... is such a good movie. Yes. Yeah. One of one of my favorites next to Sicario and Hell or High Water, funny enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. Prisoners, a story about a kidnapping and a detective and a father, two fathers looking for their daughters. Inglorious Bastards, as you said, oh, Parasite. Nice. Oh, yeah, another one, one of overlap. the best, best picture winners ever. Yeah. The Matrix, which it's been debated over the years that the Matrix is took influence from source material. And I read the source material. There there's definitely a lot of connections, but there's also enough differences where it's its own thing. So I, I it's important to acknowledge where the Matrix came from, the influences, but it technically is its own thing. So The Matrix, one of the best science fiction films ever made. 
and then Bad Times at the El Royale. I'm so... Oh, I was wondering if you were going to have this on your runner-up list, yeah. Yeah, the reason I didn't pick it in my regular list is I didn't want to just pick all my favorites. And then also, it could work as a book because there's all these little vignettes happening yeah. on and it'd be fun to go back and forth. It's very literary, as we've said before for other projects. So yeah, those are my runners up. I wish they made the list, but they didn't. So my number four pick is the M. Night Shyamalan movie, The Village. Another one I haven't seen. Ooh, so I actually, I wanna watch this with you. I won't spoil the twist. I'll talk about how they fumbled it, or M. Night fumbled it. So I should preface this. The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable are also in my top 100. I think those are some of the best films ever made. But after that, boy, the dive that M. Night took, it's yeah, it's bad. The, the happening. It's night and day. Yes, the lady <laughs> in the water, uh, the last Airbender, After Earth, all terrible, terrible movies. I haven't seen his newest one, Old, yet, but that's Glass. Did he make Glass? Oh, Glass. Yeah, terrible. Yeah, um, that has a following, but I, I, I don't like Glass. I haven't seen Old. Very divisive. But the Village. It takes place in this small isolated country village that they're saying it's in the 19th century so you know no technology all that stuff and this town is surrounded by woods on all sides so they're enclosed and in the woods lies these creatures who wear red and red is outlawed you can't have any red anywhere because it attracts these Mm. beasts Mm -hmm. so as long as the humans don't go into the woods the beasts don't mess with them and the whole plot of the movie is that one day the beasts come into town and are killing the animals and it's they throw away this long-lasting truce between man and beast. Mm-hmm. And so the whole movie is about that. Now, where I think a book could come in and correct the fumbling of this movie is that there are two insane twists that I think are great. I think they're incredible. There's been much debate as to, you know, the effectiveness of it, how it might be a little silly, all that stuff. I think they're great. But M. Night Shyamalan fumbles the timing of them. One Mm. comes too early for no reason. Another one is very convoluted in how it's revealed to the audience. And I feel like if some author could come in and kind of... Because it's a very... It's shot by Roger Deakins. Oh, really? A uh, very cool. beautiful movie. For the most part, it's like a romance film between Bryce Dallas Howard and Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, William Hurt plays the patriarch of the town and I guess the family, the elders. And I love stories about secluded towns that almost feels like a, a cult. And there's there's elders and there's a way of law and there's something... Midsommar? <laughs> yeah, there, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's something otherworldly going on. There's something... Something's wrong and you can't quite pinpoint yeah yeah i like i like movies like that something is up with this town (laughs) something's up dude something's up up. and yeah people are asking questions dude i just think the movie needs a rewrite i guess i'm more asking this film can't be remade because the twists are spoiled like everyone if you've seen it before you know what's going on but I think a book could really capitalize on splicing in those twists at at a different point or in a different way, in a more eloquent way. Because there's a big exposition dump done by none other than M. Night Shyamalan himself. He loves to put himself in his own movies. (laughs) Uh, He's not the best actor. (laughs) But 
yeah, he it's it's just kind of a shame that this guy he became known for twists after the Sixth Sense and Unbreakable, and now that kind of became his thing. And he's just fumbled most of his films since. Mm -hmm. The Village could have been great. I mean, with Roger Deakins at the helm, could have been great. Mm -hmm. But it just isn't quite there. I'm an apologist for the film, but it doesn't stick the landing. So it needs to be a book so it can be altered. And mm -hmm. I, I think it'd be interesting to see other characters' perspectives. Um, cool. Yeah. That's all I'll say about that. No, I, I, I like it because I think we both took a different approach to this episode because you took a little deeper approach where you say it's it would be nice to see the some of the flaws in these movies fixed by yeah. being turned into literature. That's really smart. I just came at this where I just wanted to talk about my favorite stuff because I right. talk about it to you all the time. So well, I guess I'll just continue talking well, about it to you. Well, Ex Machina, that's one of um, my favorites. And my, the next pick is my favorite movie. Okay. So your final pick? My final pick... Do you want to start my timer? Because otherwise I'll just talk about it for ages. And you're on the clock. All right. We're going to jump in. This was a shocker to me. This doesn't necessarily beat Mad Men for my favorite television show, but it's so different. I can't really compare them, but Fleabag. Fleabag, oh God. Let's dive into Fleabag. Great. <laughs> it's probably Great so cliche for a woman in her late 20s to choose this as one of the greatest TV shows of all time. I guess we should really call it a short series because it's not really a TV show. Yeah, the mini. Yeah. It's a yeah, mini series uh debuted in 2016. The final series debuted in 2019. There will be no follow-ups as Phoebe Waller-Bridge has frequently discussed this story is over and I completely agree with her. This show has every single piece of it at it firing at it all cylinders. So I came across this word, I guess, in Variety. <laughs> Shout out to Variety, my favorite magazine that we get weekly. <laughs> um, it's kind of hard to keep up with. Uh, God, come out and fight me, Variety. <laughs> you are combative today. Jeez. No, I love Variety. It's just that every week it's difficult it's a lot to of read. Paper. Okay. It, well, no, no, no. It, I, I love that we get it paper because I rip out my favorite articles and, and read them. That's true. Over and over. But no, it's just... They're like, they're like 100 pages each, and it's right. a lot to read weekly. Anyway, backing up. Um, I, I read the word traumedy, which is a portmanteau word of trauma comedy, and I think that is the word for this series. And actually, I think it was referring to the show Dead to Me, which I also really like on Netflix. But I think this is a really good example of a traumedy. So basically, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who is the conceptualizer... <laughs> of the show. She wrote it, directed, acted, starred in it, everything, cast it basically from the ground up. She is called Fleabag. She's not really referred to anything other than Fleabag. And the premise of the show is that she has lost her best friend as well as her mother. And she's working through that trauma as a, you know, sort of a millennial, I guess, a little bit older than us, but she's trying to work through that and trying to stay positive. Um, trying to make money, trying to date, kind of everything that everybody in our generation is trying to do at this time. And the thing that that really blew my mind was the last shot after, spoilers, her and the priest break up at the bus station. And 
she looks back at the camera and in that moment, you finally understand all of her takes to the camera throughout the entire show. That decision to suddenly, almost jarringly, place the audience into the show by revealing that you've kind of been her imaginary best friend after Boo has died. Oh, who's also in About Time. She oh, plays yeah, a yeah. character in About Time. To force the audience to realize that they have been a participating member as her best friend who's died of an accidental suicide. That literally makes every single movie, TV show, sketch, take to the camera, look bad. It, it gave that those takes to the camera a purpose. And I was thinking about this because Sex in the City, especially in season one, but throughout the show, Carrie is basically doing all these takes to the camera and it's never really explained. Like you're kind of meant to be her reading audience for her column. Um, I love Sex in the City for a lot of reasons, but that's that function in the show is never really explained or never really, there, there's not a function for it, I guess, which makes it kind of a failure of the show. Same with Fer Ferris Bueller's Day Off. There's not really a function for him talking to the camera other than the fact that he's just kind of obsessed with himself and kind of thinks that he's the center of the universe. This show makes all of those look like there's no reason for that. Mm. Because she's been talking to her best friend because she has no one else to talk to. And so all of these incredibly vulnerable takes to the camera, you then realize are, you know, they're not going on around other people. And the, the final sort of breaking point where you see that facade rub off earlier, but you don't realize, gosh, is this making sense? Am I just like becoming Charlie Day? No, and you're, you're, okay. that's great. Cause, yeah. cause you, you always wonder, are those breaks being picked up by the people in the show, right? And the people yeah. in the movie. And you finally realize that those breaks aren't being picked up because the people around her aren't paying attention to who she really is. Mm. Because she's not, she's not turning away from those characters. She's going away in her mind. She's checking out. Yeah. Mentally, because she can't engage with the people around her because she's so depressed. And the reason that make, it makes it so sad is because it reveals that all of these people don't get her. Her father, <laughs> Olivia Coleman, who plays her stepmother, who's an absolute fucking bitch. Um, and uh, who else is in her life? Her customers, the people she tries to date. Sister. Her sister, exactly. Thank you, her sister. They don't notice that she's checked out and they don't notice how much help she needs. And so when the priest, played by Adam Scott, who, by the way, love him also, he does notice that checking out for her. It's not physical, it's entirely mental. And he goes, whoa, like, where'd you go? Where'd you go? Like, he, he like, jolts her back into her life and back to the present. And... Gosh, that the end where they break up is it destroys me. <laughs> it's yeah. so heartbreaking. I, I just go on this journey with these these characters. They're it's it's absolutely tragic. Yeah. Um Danny just uh corrected me. I said Adam Scott. That's uh he's in Parks and Rec. I meant Andrew Scott. Yes. Who's in Sherlock. Incredible. And Inspector, the best Bond film. Yeah, that movie sucks. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I love well, him. Um, 
Yeah. Did I? Oh, oh, and I was no. So sorry. I was gonna. I was gonna finish up by saying there's a whole thing about a fox in this movie, and that made me think of Green Knight. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing miniseries. One of the best limited series of all time. I actually have a controversial take in that even though season two was a great end to a story, I actually think another season would be great. I, I disagree with Phoebe Waller-Bridge. I think oh, really? one more season and this would be, I, I don't think it would be stringing the show along. Interesting. Yeah, I guess it would be interesting to see her move on past her trauma um, a little bit more. But yeah, I don't know. I think I just like the way that they... Yeah, they it's not it. it's not fully necessary, but two seasons, especially at six episodes each, you want more. Yeah. And I think one more would be enough without stretching it out just to for the sake of more seasons. Yeah, I guess she's she's not the kind of person that that would like tie a nice knot though. I think I I don't know, like I can see her resist, resisting resisting that. That's true. You know. That's, but anyway, that's very yeah, true. we can move on. Yeah. All right, my number one pick is my favorite movie of all time. Laura knows it, but it's the 1998 film directed by Peter Weir, the Jim Carrey vehicle, The Truman Show. Yep. What a film. Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Is it an introspective? Is it a tramedy? Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> is it social comedy? Like, what? what is it? It's... It's a beautiful film, first visually, and it's perfectly paced in how it reveals information. You start out with Truman Burbank's life, and then you see his life from a lot of different weird, quirky angles, like through a glass door, through the car windshield, like what's going on here? Yeah, the mirrors, the lights, the coffee maker. You're like, why are we getting all these different angles? And then slowly, the information is slowly delved out to you in a perfectly paced way. And then around just after the midpoint, then you get the drop. You go into Ed Harris's perspective, or no, you go into this perspective of a news station doing a piece on The Truman Show, and you go literally outside of the bubble, both figuratively, literally. You see the whole workings, you get interviews from everyone who worked on the show. A young Paul Giamatti is this is in one of his earlier roles. Um, he looks the same age as he does now. It's kind of weird. But yeah. uh, Ed Harris, who is, for my money, is one of the most underrated actors yeah, of all time. Yeah, he's, he's never won an Oscar, which is nuts to he me. He also kind of looks the same age no matter yeah, when, that's what true. movie you see that's him in. That's very true. And then Jim Carrey. Uh, he won the Golden Globe for his performance, wasn't nominated for an Oscar, which is absolutely blasphemous. This film speaks to me on such a personal level because Truman Burbank, his whole thing is that he doesn't travel or venture out into the ocean because he has trauma from his dad getting lost at sea. And it's kind of a big message of how there are obstacles in Truman's way. Like everyone working on the show is working their darndest for him not to leave, right? Because they want to keep the show going. They want to keep this whole facade up. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to Truman making the decision to stay. The producers do everything in their power to make him stay. But at the end of the day, it is Truman's own volition, his own drive to stay. So 
it's a big message of how like you are your own worst enemy when it comes to motivation, when it comes to goals. Life will throw whatever they can at you, just like Ed Harris threw the storm at Truman as he was trying to escape. But you just gotta venture through. You cannot let your own insecurities, anxieties, past drama dominate your life and make you stuck at, at one place. You must persevere. And it's just so inspiring. I mean, I'm not claiming to have such a tough life that like, oh, look at me, how I've persevered. Mm. But I, I think it's just a great message for saying like, you, you are your own captain. Like you are, you are Truman. Are you going to let everyone around you, are you going to let circumstance anchor you to one place or to one thing? Or are you going to actually, are Shrink you going to, yeah, are you gonna do? Are you gonna accomplish your goals? Are you gonna do what you want? Because you deserve it. Like everyone deserves to do what they want to do, and people, for whatever reason, it doesn't matter. People will try to stop you from that, obstruct you from that. And you gotta, I mean, know who your friends are and surround yourself with loving people. But you also, you need to make the journey on your on your own because you are that special. Mm -hmm. Yeah. On top of that message, it's just a, a beautiful film and a fun film. And yeah, I don't remember exactly when we told each other our favorite movie. I can't, I, I remember for some reason it might have been our first date just because we met for a movie. But I remember you telling me that this was your favorite movie and it was really surprising to me because obviously you have seen more movies than I have and a lot more different genres than I have. But I don't think I've met anybody else who thinks that this is their favorite film. And it was really telling for me. And I, because I agree, I think it's a really different movie. And I think one of the reasons it didn't win a lot of Academy Awards is it's just not a specific genre. Like, is it a comedy? Because Jim Carrey is in it and he's really funny yeah. in a lot of ways. And it's kind of a silly concept that would never happen. In a way, it's kind of sci-fi. Like, they've yeah. got this guy trapped in a bubble and there's cameras on him 24 7 like that's a weird idea but it kind of just like about time it's very touching and like you said there's a huge theme to it yeah so yeah i thought i think that's kind of something that made you stick out to me personally just when you told me that this was your favorite movie danny has a poster of not only the truman show but also ex machina yeah <laughs> on our wall i guess we have it on our wall but yeah, I also just love the film because I love when all the cameras are on me. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, the central tragic romance between Truman and Sylvia, who's like plays Lauren in the show. It's actress Natasha McElon, a Scottish actress. Truman met her in his youth, but she was an actress, and the producer kicked her off the show because she was interacting with. Truman, like he was a real person, and Truman started to catch on that she wasn't real. That whole central romance about Truman is searching for her and like puts together different pictures from magazines to create a, her face. Like it's not creepy at all, it's very touching. That's it's just beautiful. So, yeah, favorite movie written by Andrew Nichol. Uh, so, shout out to him, great screenwriter. Yeah, I love it. Wish it was a book so we could discuss it, but discussed it now. Whew. Yeah, that was longer than I thought we were going to yeah, record. Like um, an elf holding a PlayStation 5 on Christmas. We got to wrap it up. <laughs> I just thought of that right <laughs> off the top of my head. Okay. Um, any closing thoughts? Um, no, I think that we, yeah, this is going to be a lot to edit. 
so we should probably wrap it up. Thanks for listening. As always, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And go ahead and give Pat and John a listen. And our episode again is number 66. Yes. Thank you again to Pat and John. That was fun. And we'll be back on Halloween with our coverage of Dr. Sleep with special guest Kyle Tag. Yay! BU alum. Go Terriers. (laughs) All right. We'll see you on the next one.